Good morning, everybody. Everybody's doing well this morning. No, it's awesome. We are currently in the middle of a series called Game Changers. Five game-changing verses in your Bible. I know that's not what it says on the graphic, but I just wanted to emphasize that these verses are coming from your Bible. And too often we let that thing sit on the shelf throughout the week, and we pick it up on Sunday morning, and then we set it back on the shelf, and we don't pick it up again until Sunday. And it's my hope that through this series you see that there's some incredible game-changing fear-busting, anxiety-melting truth in God's Word, if you'll only open it and read it, which I love to have you guys do. So, are you ready to dive into week number three? If you're ready, say ready. ready. Awesome. Well, my dad told me a story about when he was a child, about probably eight, nine, ten years old, something like this, and it was about October sometime in the fall, and they were getting ready to carve pumpkins. And so he and his sister, one of his sisters, Wendy, was carving pumpkins together. And he thought his looked really, really good. And he turned to his sister's, and he thought hers was really ugly. So he decided, I'm going to tell her. So he said, Wendy, I think your pumpkin's really ugly. Well, what do you think happened? Wendy starts crying. She runs, runs to mom. Mom, mom, Brett told me that my pumpkin was ugly. And mom, being a really good mom, steps in and says, Brent, you need to say you're sorry. So my dad stands up, all of 10 years old, looks his sister in the face, and with full sincerity says, Wendy, I'm sorry your pumpkin's so ugly. <laughs> That's a true story. Apology is part of life. Apology is a huge part of life, actually, because if we don't master the arts of apology, we're not going to have any relationships. We're broken, sinful human beings, you and me. Even if you don't necessarily feel like you are, you are. And if that's the case, then our relationships are going to be marked by the rhythm of when we apologize to each other. Because we are going to let each other down. We're going to hurt one another. We're going to wrong one another. As much as we try not to, even inadvertently we're going to do these things because we're broken, sinful people. And so apology is a part of life. Apology is necessary for relationship. There's a word for people who are really bad at apologies. Lonely. It's true. And if this is how our human relationships work, you and I and us together, if this is how they work, well, we get our relationship idea, the whole concept of it, we get it from God himself. God is three in one. He is, by definition, he exists in relationship. And so he has gifted us with relationships, and we have a relationship with him. And if our relationships with each other come from that relationship, then our relationship with God works the exact same way. Only one thing. We tend to not be very good apologizing to God. Either we don't do it, we don't do it often, or when we do, we do it pretty badly. Now, this isn't saying that the quality of my apology determines the level of my forgiveness. That's not the case. God, is, God will forgive me. He is good. He is gracious. That's because he's awesome, not because I'm awesome. But there is something else to be spoken of, and that is the quality of my relationship with him, how close I am with him. That does 
get damaged if I am not doing this well, if we are not mastering the art of repentance. That's the, that's the word that Scripture would tie to our word apology. When I apologize to someone, the idea is that I am turning. That's the word repentance in Scripture means to turn. I'm turning from my previous ways to a new way. And this is what we are expected to do over and over and over again. But how do we do this well? Well, today's main idea, it's at the top of your notes. I don't want you to miss this. This is the key thing that we have to include if we are going to do this well, if we are going to have relationships with God that are worth having. It's this. Your sin breaks God's heart. It should break yours too. Your sin breaks God's heart. It should break yours too. I think we tend to treat God like a boss. And he is the boss. He has the authority. But we treat him only like this. When scripture says we should treat him like a heavenly father, right? But we treat him like a boss. When I get out of line, I'm worried about the fact that I broke the rules. When, if we understand sin and we understand God the way that scripture desires us to, the way that God desires us to through his word, then we understand that when we're breaking God's rules, we're not just breaking his rules, we're breaking his heart. It's true. And this is a concept that we have to internalize because if we don't do that, then the quality of our apology to God is going to be really low. I'm just going to say, sorry, not sorry. That's the title of today's message. It's what we tend to do with God. Because I know that there's something I'm doing that's out of line that God wants me to do differently. And so I don't like how that makes me feel. I don't like that, you know, I'm, I maybe not am good with God or like it's making me feel uncomfortable, my guilt or whatever. So I say, sorry, not sorry. Because I end up continuing to do the thing that I was doing before without really understanding what effect it has on God himself. And so today's game-changing verse comes from a book that probably a lot of people in the room have not spent a whole lot of time reading. If you have, then I'm very pleasantly surprised. It's, a book, it's the book of Joel in your Old Testament. Joel, ending in an L, not in a B. Joel. Joel is a book that I know not many people sit down and say, I'm going to do my morning devotions out of Joel today. But you should. I hope a lot of people do Joel devotions this week. <laughs> Joel is a book that's found in, it's tucked away in the Old Testament. It's near the end of the Old Testament. In fact, no shame today if you are turning there right now and you need to use your table of contents to find it. We do this with the Bible, by the way. We're like, I don't need to use the table of contents. I know where that is. I've, I grew up in church. Well, get off your high horse and look it up in the table of contents. In fact, if you're not willing to do that, I got one for you right here. Table of contents right there, starting with Genesis, going all the way through Ezra, right there, Joel. It's right near the end. It's tucked away in a group of books that we refer to as the minor prophets. And they're not minor in impact. They're just minor in length. They're not very long. So I'm telling you, do Joel devotions. It's a short book, okay? But I'm warning you, it's not short on impact. It's huge. In the book of Joel, we are going to meet a group of people known as the kingdom of Judah. And in Judah, at this time, 
Judah is what was left of the southern half of the divided kingdom of Israel. So I got a map that I want to throw up for you, just to give you uh, some orientation here. At one time, under King Saul and under King David and under King Solomon, the kingdom was united. That entire colored section was one kingdom, was the kingdom of Israel. But after Solomon's sin, God divided the kingdom. And you have the top half in Israel with the capital Samaria, and you have the bottom half in Judah. That's the setting of Joel. And in about 722 BC, because the God's chosen people stopped choosing him, he sent the Assyrian army into Samaria and toppled it and drove them out of the northern kingdom. And so about 120 years later, the same thing would happen to the kingdom of Judah in the south. And that window, that 120-year window where the northern kingdom has fallen, but the southern kingdom is still intact, is when God sends a prophet by the name of Joel to Judah. And essentially what he says is, look to your north. Look to the north and look at what has happened to the northern kingdom. The same thing is coming for you unless you say you're sorry. Unless you turn. Unless you make it right with God. You think you're chosen. You think you're all good. Well, I'm here to tell you that that's not necessarily the case. And so right there is where we pick up this book. Let's turn to Joel chapter 1, verse 1. Joel chapter 1, verse 1. Just before we read, just know that what Joel is describing here, what has just happened, is a major ecological disaster. All right, so we'll read about it. Verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children and, tell it to, and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Locusts are eating everything. Verse 5. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. A nation has invaded my land, a mighty army without number. It has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. It's been a bad day. What has just happened here is a swarm of locusts has come and decimated their farmlands completely. Now, this was something that would happen from time to time, but it was unusual for it to happen in this kind of intensity. It says that, verse 7 says that it laid waste of the vines and ruined the fig trees. Frequently, what they would do in that time is they would use vines, they would use fig trees as shade, sources of shade, sit underneath them and have some rest. And what this is communicating is that this disaster is so sweeping, so huge, that there's no rest from it. All of the places where we would sit and rest are gone. This is a massive swarm. Uh, Locust swarms at their largest 
right? And we, we're pretty sure this is what this is describing. Locust storms at their largest can be 400 square miles. Just to give you a, a visual for this, I put a little red box that's roughly that size over the state of Michigan on a map. You throw it up there. That's the swarm. One square mile would feature 100 million locusts. One square mile. One female that laid her eggs could produce 18 million locusts. When they're swarming like this, a locust eats its weight per day. This is bad. This is really bad. Now, what the people might be tempted to think and what they were thinking is that, well, this is bad. This is a natural disaster. Don't know if we're going to come back from this, but we're going to try to come back from it. You know, we're going to do everything we can to make sure that the farmland uh, recovers and all those things that you'd be tempted to think in a situation like this. But in comes Joel, and Joel says, you need to reinterpret what has just happened. Because what has just happened isn't just a bad day. What has happened is God's discipline. What has happened is God's discipline. If we are going to be people who recognize that our sin breaks God's heart and have it break our hearts too, there's a few things that we need to do, all right? And they're, they're categorized in your notes this way so you can write things down. This is the first one. You need to pay attention to the discipline. You need to pay attention to the discipline. We tend to do this a lot where we will look at different difficult things in our lives and we will dismiss all of them as either, well, this is just bad luck of the draw or this is uh, the devil, right? The enemy's getting at me, right? The enemy sent this thing and is trying to destroy my faith and all that stuff. Well, those things happen. And I'm not saying that every difficult thing in your life is God's discipline. It's not what I'm saying. But there are things in our lives that certainly are God's discipline. Hebrews 12 tells us that God does this. God brings discipline on a regular basis to who? Who does he bring it to? His children. He brings it to his children. And it says that any parent who doesn't discipline their children, well, they're bad parents, right? That's what Hebrews 12 says. And so God says, I am a good heavenly father, which means that there are times in your life when there are things that are out of alignment. And not only are they out of alignment, but you're asleep at the switch and you are not paying attention. So he will send something to get our attention. C.S. Lewis says it this way in his book, The Problem of Pain. He says, God whispers in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience and he shouts in our pains. Pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. There is a disorder that's well known that it's, it's from birth where somebody doesn't feel pain, right? It's a nerve problem. They don't feel any pain, any pain at all. I've met someone like this in my life before, and I talked with them about it. And initially, you would think that this would be a good thing. Like, hey, awesome. No pain. 
Nothing ever hurts. I can go outside. I can ride whatever things I want to ride. I can go as fast as I want to go. It's not going to hurt. No, it's actually what they described it to me. They said it's a living nightmare because you end up doing damage to your body and not knowing it, not having any idea. Pain in the human body, nerve endings, it's, our syst- it's an alarm system. <laughs> That's what it is. It's an alarm system to tell you, hey, stop doing the thing you're doing. Right? <laughs> you touch the stove and your skin is burning off. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but you should probably move your hand. <laughs> or you won't have one left to touch anything else. Let's get going. This is what we do. But the problem is, spiritually, we get very, very comfortable. We get really, really comfortable. You see, I want you to look at this. Joel chapter 1, let's skip ahead to verses 13, verse 13 through 15. This is what Joel is saying to these people. You're looking at this ecological, natural disaster, and I'm telling you, it's not a natural disaster, it's a supernatural disaster. Put on sackcloth, you priests, and mourn. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God. For the grain offerings and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. Declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. Alas, for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Joel is saying, okay, If you're not responding, I'm going to hit the alarm button for you. There's something radically wrong here. He says, put on sackcloth. Well, sackcloth was uh, was made of like goat hair or some other kind of hair. And we we see it often in scripture. Here's sackcloth's one and only purpose. It's to be uncomfortable. They would put it on and would leave it on. And the only reason is so that it would make you uncomfortable. And you would stay that way. We don't like discomfort. We like comfort. I have a Snuggie. (laughs) Never seen this, have you? I went to church this morning, and the pastor preached half his message with a Snuggie on. Well, this is the only thing. I got a couch here, too. I'm just going to chill. This is much better. Anybody see me? How you doing? This is nice. This is comfy. (laughs) It'd be bad if the pastor fell asleep during a sermon. You comfortable? We get too comfortable. We get too comfortable. This is what we do with our sin. This is what we do. With sin, not every sin, but sins that work for me. Sins that pay off. Sins that do something for me. Get comfortable. Wrap them up like a nice warm blanket. Cozy up with them on the couch. This is why God's got to get our attention. Right? I've got, bitter and, I've got bitterness and unforgiveness in my heart. Well, 
That's because they need to pay for what they did to me. They need to pay. If I don't hold this bitterness in my heart, they're not going to pay. It does something for you. And God says, no, you need to forgive. You need to let go of that bitterness. You need to repent. And I'm saying, well, sorry, not sorry. Because I'm comfortable with it. I'm comfortable with what I'm doing with my girlfriend or my boyfriend. Even though we're not married. I'm comfortable with it. Because it reinforces my identity. makes me feel good about myself. And God says, no, you need to save that for marriage. And I'm saying, sorry, not sorry. Because I'm comfortable. But there are things that are happening. There's damage being done to the body. There's damage being done to me spiritually. And I'm not paying attention. I'm looking at stuff I shouldn't look at online. What works for me? You have no idea what that's doing to your brain. You have no idea what that's doing to your heart. You have no idea what the sin is doing. And so God says, hey, pay attention. Get uncomfortable. Because the moment you get, here's the reality. This is the reality. You will never repent of a sin you're comfortable with. It'll never happen. And it will slowly destroy you. So pay attention to discipline. Because God's trying to get your attention. Is there something in your life, it could be, most of the time, by the way, it's related to whatever it is that you need to repent of. It's usually a consequence that is coming as a result of the thing that you are doing that you are not quite turning away from. In Judah, what they were doing was worshiping a false god named Baal. And Baal was known as the god of rain and storms and weather. What was the thing that God sent? Locusts. They were falling down, worshiping a false god because they wanted to ensure that they had good crops. God says, I've got your good crops right here. I'm going to send the locust swarm, and it's going to decimate your crops because I'm trying to, not because I'm, not because I am shunning you, not be, no, the opposite. I'm calling you back to me. I'm trying to get your attention here. I have to use this to do it. We have to pay attention to what God is saying in our lives. What is he saying in yours? Is he trying to get your attention? Is there something in your life that you know you're not turning from, and there are some consequences that God is allowing to play out that are a direct result of the fact that you aren't, you aren't saying you're sorry. You're not really, you're saying sorry, not sorry. You're not turning. Is that happening in your life? That's the first thing. You need to do some analysis and pay attention to the discipline. Not everything is God's discipline, but some things definitely are. Here's the second thing that we need to do. If we are going to be people who have broken hearts, over our sin the way God's is, we need to understand what's at stake. We need to understand what is at stake. To get this idea across to you guys, I decided to show you a about 25-second video clip of a classic TV show, okay? Are you guys ready for this? We got audio and everything ready to go back there? All right, let's do it. Let's watch it. Friends, right? (laughs) It's classic. 
I love this clip because just before this clip, Chandler, who's roommates with the character Joey, has just kissed Joey's girlfriend. Right? And it has come close to destroying their relationship, destroying their friendship. And so (laughs) to prove how much this relationship means to him, he gets into a box. And he stays there for an extended period of time. It's so interesting to me because he has already said sorry for what he did. He's already said that multiple times over. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And he's done that. But there's an interesting thing here. I think the reason that he gets into the box is because he understands what's at stake. He understands that it's not just saying sorry for something that I did. He's understanding that I did something that has harmed my relationship with this other person that I have wronged, and so I am going to demonstrate what this means to me, because I know what's at stake. Let's look at Joel chapter 2, verse 12. Joel chapter 2, verse 12. Same situation. And God says this, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with, what's that phrase? All your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Fasting and weeping and mourning. Why does God call for this? God's gracious. Yes, he is. God's full of compassion. Yes, he is. But he's saying, return to me with all your heart and demonstrate it with fasting and weeping and mourning. These are things that take time. These are things that take time. Right? I can't just flip the switch and be good. These are things that take time, right? There are many of us, I believe, many of us, who are walking around, and we might be forgiven by God, but we don't feel forgiven. We don't have the assurance of the close relationship with God, because far too often, when it came to our sin, we have given God kind of a weak apology and not a real turn of repentance. We've not done this. And one of the things that we have missed out on is we've not understood what's at stake. That what's at stake is my closeness with God. That I demonstrate to him that it's more important for me to be close to him than it is to be let off the hook. I think so many of us, especially in our relationships with each other, we say sorry. I do this a lot, actually. This is something I need to work on. We say sorry quickly because it's more important to us to get let off the hook than it is to restore the relationship. God's got me in his hands, but I can can live this entire life, be saved, and be miserable because I'm not walking with him. And it's because all of my sin has done so much damage to my relationship with him that I, and I don't understand what's at stake. I don't get that my sin, my isolated sin of today, whatever that is, this thing I've been overly comfortable with, this thing that has ravaged me spiritually, even though I'm not totally aware of that, this thing here can have such a damaging effect on my closeness with him, but it's true. It's, it's what happens. It clouds my ability to see him clearly. We got to understand what's at stake. There's a word, the reason... Let me tell you this. There's a reason why 
this happens to us. Here's the reason why this happens to us. As a culture, there's a word that we have put in a bad category and we just leave it there and we avoid it at all costs. And the word is shame. Now, people will tell you, culture will tell you, psychologists will tell you, this is the biggest problem we have, is that we are absorbed with shame and we just need to get it out, we need to get it out of our lives because it's all bad. Well, that's not what Scripture teaches. That's not what God's Word says. Let's look at Ezekiel chapter 43, 10 to 11. I'm going to have it up on the screen for you so you don't have to turn there. Ezekiel chapter 43, verses 10 to 11. The temple is being built, the second temple, the temple is being rebuilt, and this is what God says, Son of man, describe the temple to the people of Israel that they may be ashamed of their sins. Part of the purpose of the temple was to bring about shame. Right? To be ashamed of their sins, let them consider its perfection, and if they are ashamed of all they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangement, its exits, its entrances, its whole design, and all its regulations and laws. Write these down before them so that they may be faithful to its design and follow all its regulations. Part of the purpose was to bring about shame. That's not just the Old Testament, by the way. Paul talks about it all the time. Two times in the Corinthians, he says, I'm saying something to shame you. I'm bringing this out for you. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, he encounters the holiness of the Lord, and this is how he responds. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. What we don't understand is that not all shame is bad. Some of it is healthy. If I have offended the holiness of God, I should be ashamed of myself. I should. There is a difference here between well-placed shame and misplaced shame. Misplaced shame is focused on me and lasts a long time. Well-placed shame is focused on how I have hurt and offended God. And it doesn't last very long. You get that difference? If I am sad because I know how my sin has affected the Lord, that is an appropriate shame because I understand what's at stake. If it's misplaced, it's focused on me. And I just get absorbed with thoughts about myself that I don't measure up and that I'm terrible and that I'm all this other stuff. Well, that's not really understanding what's at stake. In fact, that kind of shame lasts way too long and does incredible amounts of damage to me moving forward. But if I have well-placed shame, I know what's at stake. I know what my sin has done to my relationship with God. I know what it's done to his heart. When I turn to him, there's something that happens. There's something that happens, and it's the last thing in your notes. We are now at our game-changing verse if we are going to be people whose heart breaks the ways God's does over our sin, if we are going to be people who have a quality repentance, a robust repentance, repentance of our sin that restores a right relationship with God, we need to pay attention to the discipline. We've got to understand what's at stake, and we need to say it the same. Here's what I mean. This is the game-changing verse of the day, Joel 2.13 
says this. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. The word rend there means to tear it up. What they would do to show sadness is they would tear their clothes. So they would do this ritualistically. Well, I'm going to demonstrate that I have sorrow over my sin, and they'll tear it while there's nothing going on in the inside. Sorry, not sorry. That's what that is. But God is saying, I don't, I don't care what you do with your garment. I care that you tear up your heart, that you tear it up, that you make sure that your heart breaks the way that mine breaks. And the way that we can do this is we need to talk about our sin the way that God does. We need to use the vocabulary that God uses when we're talking about our sin, when we're confessing to him. When I'm making that apology, I'm going to the Lord and I'm saying, Lord, I have sinned against heaven and against you. And this is how I've done it. Because so often I think we just say, God, forgive me. And we don't actually have the conversation. We don't actually sit and talk with him about this thing. But if we did, if we said it the same way that he says it, we would experience the last part of this verse here. We would experience his grace. We would experience his compassion. We would experience him being slow to anger and abounding in love and relenting from sending calamity because he loves us so deeply that he is unwilling to allow our sin to damage us going on into the future. He will get our attention. And then he says, come back. But you need to say it the way I say it. We know that this is true because there's a passage in the New Testament It's in 1 John chapter 1. Again, I'm going to throw it up on the screen for you. 1 John chapter 1. This is a well-known passage. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Every one of us has something to be sorry for every day. Every day. Every one of us has something to be sorry for before the Lord every single day. You think, well, that's a terrible way to think of yourself. No, it's an accurate way to think of yourself. And if you go to him, what's going to happen? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. How wonderful is that? Isn't that good news? If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. God doesn't lie. The word confess there in verse 9, it's a Greek word Every time it's translated as confess, and the Greek word is homologeo, and it means to say the same thing. That's what it means. Literally, it means same speech. So when I confess to the Lord, it's incredibly important because it's the very command we're receiving. If we confess our sins, in other words, if I talk about my sin the way God does, well, what does he say about sin? I'm going to give you a little bit of a tour here. You don't have to turn to these passages. This is just a sampling. There's a lot more. Galatians 5.21 says that it disqualifies me from the kingdom. That's what sin does. Colossians 5.6, it's deserving of God's wrath. My sin is deserving of God's wrath. I have to understand that. That's why it's important that I look to the cross. Because if I trust in Jesus, then all of the wrath that my sin 
deserved goes to him, right? That's what we understand about the gospel. Isaiah 64, 8, it makes me unclean. My sin makes me unclean to stand before the presence of God. This, is, this, one is, this one's big. Revelation 3, 16, my sin disgusts him. He'll spit me out of his mouth. That's what it says, unless I trust in the name of the Lord. Sin is a serious thing. We sang this morning about how glorious God is. Wonderfully glorious, wonderfully powerful, and we praise his name. And we stand here, we lift up our hands, and we sing our, with all of our voices, and we do this, and we should. Because the more seriously I take God and his holiness and his glory, the more likely I'm going to be to get down on my knees and talk about my sin with the words that he uses. And to say, Lord, I have sinned against you, right? My, my sin, I hate my sin the way you do, right? We got to get to that point. This is what helps us get to this point. We got we to hate our own sin the way that God does, right? God doesn't hate you. He loves you. He hates your sin, right? And that's good. That's really good that he does because we know that he's a God that's good that we can trust. But I need to hate my sin the way that he hates my sin. And so often if I'm too comfortable with it, if I'm not paying attention to it, I'm not going to be somebody who goes to him and says, I am genuinely sorry. I'm going to say sorry, not sorry, and I'm going to keep going on. And my sin is going to continue to destroy me and destroy my life and destroy my heart and destroy my relationship with him. This is what we have to understand. There's a, there's a passage in the Old Testament that is a perfect example of what this means. Uh, to say it the same. To use the same words that God uses to know what's at stake, to pay attention to the discipline. See, we talked about King David, and King David was a man after God's own heart, but he also messed it up big time, really big. If any of you think, well, my sin, I don't know that God can forgive my sin. Nope, 1 John 1, 9, he is faithful to forgive your sin every time if you confess it, faithful. How do we know? Well, look at the Old Testament. David, David, was an adulterer, and he covered up his adultery with murder. That's a bad day at the office. It's a bad day. But he had a relationship with God that was restored. Why? Because he said it the same. I'm just going to read this to you. It's not going to be on the screen. I'm just going to read this to you. I want you to listen to it. I want you to allow these words to wash over you as I read them. This is how we do it. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me 
a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. See what his concern is? The relationship. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, God, is a broken spirit. You, God, a broken and contrite heart, will not despise. That's how you do it. That is the apology of a man who looks at the discipline, who understands what's at stake, and says it the way God would say it. And as a result, that's a restored relationship. I'm not talking about salvation. That's something in God's hands. I'm talking about the quality of the relationship you have. Do you have a relationship with God that's worth having? Because it costs you to have a relationship with God. It costs you your will. It costs you your time. It costs you your resources. Do you have one that's even worth having? And maybe if you don't, you'd consider going this route and looking at your life and saying, there might be some things here that I can go to God and confess and I can actually say, man, I am truly sorry about this. And I'll bet you, if you do this this week, you'll experience what Joel 2.13 says. Let's throw it up one more time. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. That is what you'll experience. Grace, compassion, patience, and love. Every single time. God's word says it. We stand on it. Would you stand with me? We want to be a church that takes God seriously. It's good for us to do that. It's good. Because if we pursue him and turn to him the way that he instructs us to, he's the same every time. You can count on acceptance every time. You can count on forgiveness every time. But we got to be a, a community that takes him and his glory seriously. So let's pray that prayer together today. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are holy and we are not. Too often we get comfortable with our sin. Lord, make us uncomfortable that we may turn to you, that we may be awakened to the reality of life. And every day, help us turn to you and restore us and restore our relationship with you because you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. We thank you so much that you showed that love to us through Jesus on the cross and made a way for us to have a relationship with you forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. See you next week.